Well, good morning. And if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. It's great to have you with us. And we hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, well, if you're joining with us this morning, we are continuing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And look, just before I start um, this morning and we look at God's Word, um, I just wanted to make a, a personal or make a personal statement or word, uh, and that is, um, Angie and I both feel very blessed um, to be called by God to be the teaching elder here, and uh, and I want to really thank the congregation for your prayers. Uh, as we looked at last week from God's Word, um, prayer does more than we could ever imagine or ask. And uh, and can I just say, as somebody who teaches God's Word, uh, I. I, uh, it sounds all pietistic, doesn't it? But where it almost sounds wrong for a Presbyterian to talk this way, that's a bad thing, isn't it? But I really feel um, the impact of prayer as I even come to preach God's word. Um, so thank you for that. Last week we looked um, at chapter one, and I know it's a very strong word, isn't it? Um, because we have a God that is bigger than most people think. Um, We have a God that doesn't just allow suffering, but orchestrates it. If you let that truth sink in for a moment, you'll realise just what a big statement that is. And we have a God that not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will. I was talking to Simon, um, one of our elders who was chairing uh, at the prayer meeting this morning and thinking, we often think of God, don't we, in his sovereign protection of us, like we're like a little sheep that has a hedge around us. And every now and again, God allows things to sort of creep in through the gaps. You know, friends, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't sort of pit God and... Satan as equals, sometimes God pokes through the gaps. Even suffering is sovereignly orchestrated in his hands. So with that in mind, let's look at God's word this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 12 to chapter 2 verse 4. And this is God's word. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? 
Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. I'm often struck as I preach systematically through the Bible just how relevant it is. It's surprising because you would think that preaching topically might be more pertinent. But it's as we make our way steadily through the Scriptures, verse after verse after verse, 
that we have this profound sense that the Lord is talking to us. That as the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, you might think that you're reading that book in front of you. But the truth of the matter is, that book is reading you. As the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, not even your mind or heart. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So before we look at this next section of God's word, let's uh, pray that the Lord would bless us. Let's pray. Father, we come and we humbly sit at your feet now. You, the true and living God of all the universe. And we pray that you would do that supernatural work of your spirit. That you would give us discernment to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Father, you know where each one of us is at. Whether we need to be comforted with an arm around the shoulder or a kick in the pants. But Father, we pray that you would meet us where we are at. That you would strengthen us. That we would stand firm by faith. And Father, finally, be with me that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Bring to mind those things we need to hear. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we saw last week from the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter is a profound piece of spiritual writing. On the surface, it seems quite straightforward. Uh, and simple, but there are depths here. Depths which are really quite difficult to fully comprehend. Usually, 1 and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, are referred to as the pastoral epistles because they deal primarily with issues relating to the local church. But I think 2 Corinthians should also be understood as a pastoral epistle because its focus is on what it means to be a minister of the gospel. Indeed, we'll keep coming back to this in the weeks ahead. But at the core of 2 Corinthians' message is that the message of the gospel should have a profound impact on what the shape of the messenger of the gospel looks like. That as we preach a crucified servant who died on the cross in our place, so too you should see before you or hear from those who preach the gospel a crucified servant. Those that preach the gospel should reflect the message they preach. And as such... This chapter gives us an intimate look as to what Nathaniel has already 
touched on of what it means to have a pastor's heart. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Dane Ortland says that the unfiltered pathos and tumultuous emotions of 2 Corinthians set it apart from every other book in the Bible. One can hardly be blamed for wondering while reading it, am I really reading the Bible here? This book exchanges uh, the carefully unfolding depths of a letter such as Romans for the ricocheting emotions and personal upheaval that unfolds in 2 Corinthians. Portland goes on to write, the letter is richly theological but not systematic. It is written with tears in the eyes. This is Paul the pastor more than Paul the professor. Now, there are three major issues which I think are central to what Paul has to say here in chapters 1 and 2. They're not the only truths in this passage. There are lots of subpoints that we could look at as well. But there are three key ideas which Paul unpacks as he tries um, or he seeks to convince the Corinthians that they should continue to trust him as a servant of the gospel, as a true apostle of Christ as opposed to the false teachers or what he later refers to as the super apostles. And they were people that were trying to draw the Corinthians away from Paul and to themselves. That's a major reason why Paul was inspired to write this particular letter, so that they would continue to trust him as a servant of the gospel. And so throughout the letter, he both defends his apostleship and also explains to the Corinthians why they should continue to submit to his leadership. The first issue that Paul addresses is his own personal integrity. Have a look at verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. If there's one thing that can destroy the legitimacy of someone's ministry, it's a lack of personal integrity, isn't it? You only have to think of some recent examples such as Mark Driscoll, Brian Houston, or especially Ravi Zacharias, who was recently found guilty of having had a number of inappropriate sexual relationships. And now, his whole entire ministry has been discredited. What Paul is saying here, though, is, you know me. You know how I conducted myself while I was with you. You know my way of life and my ministry, in particular of how holy and sincere I was when I was with you. What an incredible claim to make. For you should be able to look at a preacher's life and see a reflection of the truths that he preaches. And while no one on this side of heaven is perfect, there is a sense in which we should be able to say, as the Apostle Paul does in verse 14, I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us 
just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, who is often regarded as one of America's greatest theologians, preached on this passage in his farewell sermon in 1750. Edwards had been voted out of his congregation by a negative to positive ratio of 10 to 1, which means that 90% of the congregation didn't want him to be their pastor. And he has now gone down in history as one of America's greatest theologians. Edwards reminded them, though, that they would all meet together one day and that there was a special bond between a spiritual father and his spiritual children. And what's more, Edward said, then they will be able to boast in each other. Now, this sounds really strange and almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because shouldn't we only boast in Christ alone? Shouldn't we only put our confidence in the gospel and not in those who preach it? Well, no. No. You see, the reason we can boast in those who preach the gospel is because gospel servants and gospel converts are a manifestation of what Christ is doing in and through the gospel. You can boast in that sense that Campbell Markham was your teaching elder. You can boast that you heard the gospel through David Jones. And they can boast in you. Which means that we're not actually boasting in each other as an end in and of ourselves. We're boasting in what Christ, by his power, is doing in and through our weakness. I concluded last week with the illustration of the ancient Japanese art of kintsugi, where beloved broken pieces of pottery uh, are painstakingly put back together. And the end result is that something which could have been rejected ends up being gloriously restored. And in a similar kind of way, God uses the liquid grace of his love to put our own broken lives back together. To redeem us so that we become, even in this life, something infinitely more beautiful and precious through his hands. And I can just say how amazing it is to get around the congregation, even in the last five months, and to hear how the Lord is doing that in and through each of you. Angie and I were having dinner with someone recently. And as I sat there, you could just see, almost animated in them, the work of God's grace. Their life had been filled with so many tragedies that, humanly speaking, they should have been bitter and angry. But instead, they were filled with God's spirit. They overflowed with thankfulness and even joy. Testimonies are like, like that are so incredible 
that it's something that you and I should boast in, should we not? Because that's what Christ is doing. There was an issue that arose in Corinth, though, which sadly the false teachers had tried to leverage to undermine the Corinthians' confidence in the Apostle Paul, to convince them to put their faith in themselves rather than to give glory to God by depending on Christ. You see, that's always the way with false teachers, is the glory goes to them rather than to Jesus. Paul had initially planned to visit them twice, but then only ended up seeing them once. He was supposed to visit them on his return trip from Macedonia, but for some reason or another, it never eventuated. And the false teachers were using this as an opportunity to attack Paul's integrity. They were saying, see, Paul can't be trusted, for he's always changing his mind. He's like that fickle boyfriend that Simon was talking about. He's up, he's down, you don't know he's hot, he's cold. He doesn't really love you. And whenever a better opportunity comes up, he takes it. Now that might seem like a bit of a trivial accusation to make. But in the hands of an opponent, it's quite compelling. Sinful hearts can twist and use all manner of things can cast doubt on someone's integrity. Paul's response to them, though, can I just say, is amazing. Because rather than defending himself and giving a personal explanation, Paul suddenly switches from autobiography to theology. From his own fickle travel plans to the timeless, unchanging, eternal truth of the gospel. On the one hand, he says in verse 17, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? And then immediately he goes on to say that that is the complete and utter opposite to the gospel that he preaches. That in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. You see, he's not fickle in his travel plans because the gospel itself is not fickle. It's all yes in Christ. He is the one who never changes but cares for his people in each and every age. And because of that, because God is so profoundly committed to us, he does for us Four things. Verse 21, he makes both you and I stand firm in Christ. He spiritually anoints us. Verse 22, he sets his seal of ownership on us and puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, brothers and sisters, can I just say what Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write here? is masterful. Because rather than defend himself against his accusers, Paul brings the Corinthians back to the truth of the gospel. Not because of Jesus... Uh, that. Well, let me slow down a bit. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, 
they have not only been saved, but God in his grace is continuing to preserve them. As we read in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus is not letting any one of us out of his hands. We may suffer. We may even stumble sometimes, but God continues to lift us up. Even when we might feel weak and we let go, God has us in a monkey grip. And so it is he who continues to work in us, making us stand firm in Christ. Following on from that, we have his anointing. The Holy Spirit moves within our hearts and minds to give us understanding of God's word. To truly know him, as the prophet Jeremiah says, from the least of us to the greatest, we all have the same spiritual resources. You see, even though they could boast in him as Christ's servant, Paul was ultimately saying that their confidence, the foundation of that boast, is the gospel. It's that they belong to God. And that the presence of the Holy Spirit is an ever-present reminder um, as an earthly deposit of the heavenly kingdom or that they will inherit. Now, appreciating just how great a salvation you and I have in Christ then puts into perspective the fickle travel plans of an apostle. Why did Paul only visit them once, though, and not twice, as he had previously said that he would? Well, don't miss this. It's because he loved them. He did it on purpose. Just take a look at verse 23 and following once again. It was to spare them that he didn't return a second time. Because rather than lord it over them, Paul's whole aim is to see them standing firm in Christ. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Then again in verse 2, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? You see, Paul didn't return a second time, as he originally said, because he didn't want to be involved in any kind of unnecessary conflict. Now, you have to stop and reflect on what Paul is saying here for a second. Because sometimes people need space before issues can be fully resolved. As an old saying goes, it's no good winning the argument but losing the person. Or of proving yourself to be right, but of having your relationship with the other person completely destroyed. That's a lose-lose. John Calvin explains this particular truth like this. He says, quote, There are many noisy scolders who display an amazing fervor in denouncing and raging against other people's faults and yet are untouched at heart so that they seem to take pleasure in exercising their throat and lungs. 
Calvin goes on to say, but it belongs to a godly pastor to weep within himself before he makes others weep. To suffer in his own secret heart before he gives an open sign of his wrath and to keep to himself more grief than he causes to others. That's what a godly pastor's heart looks like. To care more for the personal well-being of the sheep than even for your own personal reputation. At the very end of his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this. This is in verse 7 of chapter 13. Actually, have your Bibles flip over this with me right now. Chapter 13, verse 7. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is precisely how Paul had related to the Corinthians when he had refrained from visiting them a second time as he had initially promised. It wasn't that he was being fickle. It was that he was being loving. Everything Paul did as a pastor was motivated by love for those whom he ministered to. It was for the blessing and benefit of the Corinthians as opposed to the praise and validation in this instance of his own ministry. Paul puts it like this in verse 4, For if I, I, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Gary Miller in his commentary on 2 Corinthians has a really challenging thing to say at this point. It's a, a word to pastors, but it could be very much a word to all of us. He says, do you love the people in your church? The people you sit alongside, the people you serve, the people who teach you, the people you teach? If you do, then you will be preoccupied with them and weighed down by the responsibility of leading, pushing and prodding them into joy in Christ. You'll be ready to do anything to help them know that joy. And you'll be willing to refrain from doing anything which would deflect them from the gospel faithfulness which leads to this joy. That's where the passage from Ezekiel 34 is so helpful. Because a faithful shepherd puts themselves out to care for the sheep to leave the 99 and to bring back the one. That really annoying, difficult one that strays. That one which is broken and hurting and in pain. That's what a godly pastor's heart looks like. It's really pertinent then that the third and final truth then is focused on that of forgiveness. Once again, it's difficult to know exactly what originally happened in Corinth. 
verses 5 to 11 describe an extremely difficult pastoral situation which affected the whole congregation and even the Apostle Paul. We don't know the specific details, but someone sinned in such a serious way that it involved the dramatic step of church discipline. I think, for what it's worth, it's probably referring to the incident Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of the man sleeping with his father's wife. (laughs) But they were proud of that. And so Paul called them on it. Church discipline is often lacking in our churches today, isn't it? And while sometimes it is done in an unwise way, I think the far greater problem in Reformed evangelical churches is that it's never done at all. Gary Miller, the principal of QTC Queensland, has a really helpful thing to say at this point. He says, The absence of church discipline in many of our churches then may actually be an indictment of our lack of love for each other, flowing from a shallow grasp of the love which God has shown us in Christ. The lack of robust love expressed as godly, graceful discipline is one of the great challenges that we face in this generation. This lack lies at the root of all kinds of issues, from covering up abuse to losing any concept of church belonging and church membership. The reformers used to say that there are three marks of a legitimate church where the word of God is preached, where the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, are duly administered, and where church discipline is exercised. Sadly today, most churches get two out of three. You see, it's all too easy to be nice under the guise of being compassionate. But as we saw last week, compassion, don't think of the fabric softener here, okay? Comfort is not just an arm around the shoulders. The Bible's word for comfort is also at the appropriate point, a kick in the pants. It's rebuke. It's exhortation. And this was the mistake that many in the congregation at Corinth had made about the Apostle Paul. As he himself says later on in chapter 10, they thought that his letters were weighty and forceful, but in person they said, oh, he amounts to nothing. But Paul states, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. In short, they thought that he wouldn't confront them about the way they were acting, but they were wrong. And rather than being able to boast in their relationship, the Lord's apostle goes on to say in chapter 12 that he's afraid that when he comes and visits them, he will be humbled by them. Verse 20 of chapter 12. I'm afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. Because Paul loves them so much, he's willing to confront them regarding their sin. 
because Paul loves them so much, he is willing to confront them regarding their sin. The thing we should always keep in mind, though, is that the goal of church discipline is ultimately reconciliation. And when the person has expressed genuine remorse and repentance, we should not remain hesitant or hostile, but we should forgive. Because Satan's aim is always to cause division. Always. Which means that if we hold grudges, you're giving the devil a foothold in your, mouth, in your heart. Paul says in verses 10 and 11, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Are we? This is one of the greatest challenges in church life, isn't it? To forgive one another and to bear with one another's faults. Let me say something really quite radical here. Sometimes people say, oh, I can be a Christian and, no, and not go to church. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can't say that you love God who you do not see and you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ who you do see. You're a hypocrite. And Jesus has the most scathing assessment of that type of situation. It's like the old cartoon where the missionary comes to the Eskimo in the middle of the tundra and he's just there by his by his little igloo. igloo. And, and, and the Eskimo says to the missionary, well, the love thy neighbour part seems easy enough. If there's no neighbour, sure. But this is what makes church life so rich, is you have to bear with one another. You have to love one another. You have to forgive one another. But to say that I can be a Christian and not going to church is just rank hypocrisy. It's a lie. It's disobedience to Jesus because he commands us to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the sign, that's the fruit of salvation. And it's one of the greatest challenges of church life. I think it's especially difficult when other believers hurt or disappoint you because you expect so much more from other Christians, don't you? But what Paul is teaching or modelling for us here is that we have to keep on displaying the gospel to one another. You see, the reason why we can do this is because we've already received this. We've received forgiveness. We've received reconciliation. What Paul is saying now is just live that out. Give to others what has been given to you. 
Extend to those around you the same mercy and grace which in Christ you already have received. But don't be a hypocrite. Don't say, well, yes, I can, ex- I can receive all these things, but I'm going to hold on to my grudge. And that means not giving up on one another, but seeking to bless and love one another even more than we did before. Tim Keller makes the really excellent point that forgiveness is not about acting as though the offence never occurred. I'll just pretend that never happened. That's naive. In fact, can I... That's stupid. Forgiveness is about this. It's about absorbing the cost of the offence and choosing to love the other person anyway. That's why the act of forgiving the other person is so costly. Because it costs. Because it means that we're personally absorbing the cost of what the other person owes. And as such, it's cancelling the debt and no longer requiring a payment to be made. What Paul models for us here about having a pastor's heart is really quite profound, isn't it? Of having integrity, love, and most of all, forgiveness. Because as Paul says elsewhere, we should follow him just as he follows Christ. So these are truths and lessons, not just for me, but for all of us. Not just for the eldership, not just for the deacons, not just for even for the board of management, but for all of us. Before I close in prayer, though, why don't I give us all some time to quietly reflect on the various areas of our lives which we need to confess to God. Maybe it's forgiving another person or of acknowledging a harsh unloving or maybe even judgmental spirit, of having a lack of integrity and being motivated by selfish motives. Brothers and sisters, we all fall short of God's will in so many ways. Let's pray that he would convict us of sin and then renew us by his Holy Spirit that we might walk in his righteous paths. Let's spend some time now asking the Lord to search our hearts, bringing to mind those areas of our lives which he wants us to change. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that even while we were still your enemies, while we were still dead in our sins and blind, you rescued us and you made us alive in Christ. We thank you that you persevere with us and you make us stand firm. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you've 
comforted us through it this morning. Father, we ask for your forgiveness where we have failed to love you and to love each other as we ought. We humble ourselves before you. We ask for your mercy and your grace. We ask for the power of your spirit to be able to extend that same mercy and grace to all those around us. Lord, what a delight it is to be known by you and to be loved by you. To know that your spirit has anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and lives within us as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance which we will share. Lord, we humble ourselves before us this day, broken and contrite, asking that you will expose to us those areas that we need to change, whether it be in our thinking or in our behaviour, and asking that you will also powerfully work within us, filling us with your Holy Spirit to bring forth the fruit of your Spirit, to be more like Jesus. And we pray this to the glory of his name. Amen.